Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and my listeners get the secret story behind every book. Joining me today is Dr. Ron Wilson, and he's here to talk about his book, Joseph Aykroyd, Rediscovering a Prison Reformer. Now, Dr. Wilson holds a Ph.D. in management, a Master of Educational Management and Leadership, degrees in arts and education, a postgraduate diploma in special education, and a diploma in teaching primary. He also has 35 years' experience in educational, educational and vocational training. He's worked as a teacher, a primary school headmaster, a special school principal, and general manager of a major Victorian TAFE institute. He's currently president of the Australian Corrections Educational Association. Those are some credentials. I had to read those, Ron. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Books on Air. Oh, it's my pleasure completely. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have a talk with you, Suzanne. You know, something that struck me... When I've started doing these interviews, I started thinking about the books. People write books for all kinds of different reasons. And one of the things that occurred to me was that a book actually has two stories. It doesn't matter what kind of book it is. The story that the reader gets is the story that the author wrote. But there's always that behind-the-scenes secret story about how the book came to be. What made you decide to write a book about Joseph Aykroyd at this point in time? The the genesis of interest in me wanting to write further and, and discover further about the work of Joseph Aykroyd came from the work that I did teaching in maximum security prisons. And um, I, I found that one of the most fascinating experiences that I had, um, working in an environment which is working with some of the most marginalised people in our community. And, and prisons are, are bizarre places, Suzanne. They're just bizarre places. You know, they're homogenous groups. They're managed and controlled um, of how you manage major populations of people who don't want to be somewhere and there's lots of little battles and challenges that go on in that environment. Uh, and But what it did do for me was working in a prison and trying to understand and, and encapsulate in my mind, what is it and why was this person here in prison at that particular point of time? And through those sorts of experiences, it challenged me to try and make sense of of my community, the community that I live in, the community that we work in, the community that our families live in, and try to make sense of all of these areas. And, and as a teacher in that environment, we felt that was so important about the focus of what the teacher's role was. And that was a continuing challenge. And because there's lots of people have different perspectives about what teaching and what education should be doing in the prison. But the nub of it all is that in Victoria, we had a very unique system and approach to teaching in prisons. And every prison in Victoria, and that's a state within Australia, its own jurisdiction, um, every prison 
was a registered school. Each one was a registered school. It was recognised. The prison was a prison, but it was also a registered school. And that's not happened anywhere else in the world. I wanted to find out, how did this happen? How did this happen? And that's where I found the genesis of that came back to this point of time in 1924 when this fellow, Joseph Akeroyd, was appointed the Inspector General of Schools sorry, the Inspector General of the prison system, the penal system, beforehand he was a teacher in the schools. And it was starting to come from there that a lot of the changes and, and, and reforms that were made in our prison education sector generated from that point of time. But the more I talked about with others about Joseph Akeroy, not many people knew about him that much. So that was the genesis of wanting to find out more about Joseph Akeroyd and what his influences were. You know, when I started reading the book, and you start out with your perspective and how you came to be there, I have almost no—I was like you. I ha, I'm very naive. Fortunately, I have never had a brush with the penal system here in the U.S., but I've had a light brush with that penal system in that I did some work. We have a, a large— prison here in the state of Texas that's called Huntsville. And I did Mm. some work with the city of Huntsville. And the thing that struck me so much about that, that particular prison was that there was this strong tie within the community. But I, like you, you make the comment that prison is like another world. And when I started to think about my reactions to being that close to something that I found frightening, I thought, this is another world. And the idea about Mm. education, I mean, you and I could sit here and talk about this for hours because it's so interesting. And you're right. Joseph Aykroyd is a very interesting individual. He was just a teacher when he got this this vaunted position. Let's give our listeners a little bit of an overview about what you've covered in the book, because it's not just a biography, and I, I'm using that as a as a way to sort of categorize it a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the book in general. It, you're right in, in, in so many ways, Suzanne. It, it, it is a biography, but it's not a biography, because it's also indisposed with me trying to make sense of my experiences and understanding the world of education and prisons and relating back to some of my experiences as well. So it's it's interspersed with those reflections and my reflections of what has happened with me, what are my views, what are my experiences, and also those of my colleagues over the time. Um, and, and part of it is a celebration in some ways of the work that people do in those environments that's quite extraordinary. But to come back to to Joseph Aykroyd, what he achieved in his time as Inspector General, to me, is absolutely remarkable. And as I've indicated, he he came in as a teacher, but there's a bit more to Joseph Aykroyd than just that. He actually went into World War I. He became, from being the teacher, he was um, purloined into service, went in as a captain. He was very badly injured in the Western Front. He's come back, um, gone back into teaching for a while, 
um, and, and a challenge of so many different other um, people who've returned from war who've come back to try and fit themselves back into, into the environment um, that they have worked for prior to the war. On top of that, it's come back into the period of time of the Spanish flu, and we're all so you know, cognizant now of the COVID flus that, uh, and the COVID um, um, virus that's impacting on everybody. All these things were happening at the same time that Joseph Aykroyd was going through this process of coming back from war, changing his career, becoming, you know, from his teaching perspectives, coming into, into the prison and setting up and starting to manage the whole prisons. But he had this drive in himself of, and he often referred to it as, as, as helping the prisoners to realise the light. He calls it the light, the light of learning and, and wanting people to learn things. He, he, he saw that in every, every prisoner, that there was someone who who's, really wanted to learn more about their life, about what they do, what their options were, etc. And, and coming into an environment that's so punitive, that was a, a real struggle for him to start off with, but he persisted in terms of having to try and introduce the value of education. And he sought the assistance of so many different people from around the world and in the community and engaging in debates. And, and he, he he really set himself a goal right from the word go. He said, um, he said the system or the, the, the philosophy of penology the prisons, management of prisons, he said, is underpinned by the same philosophy of education and of teaching. Those principles of education and teaching should underpin the principles of penology. So that's his goal that he set off. Now, not everybody agreed with him, and there was lots of fights around how to interpret that. And, and, and our history shows so many times, and that's our history being the Western history, of, of these battles philosophical battles, arguing battles, political battles and so on about what the roles of prisons and what prisons should do. But he said this guy, he said, prisons should be based around, based around a therapeutic approach, helping people to become uh, really active, contributing citizens for themselves and growing themselves, but for their community. And so therefore, that was his driving vision. But Suzanne, he had to battle with a few things because of this role, he also had to battle with the way that the courts imposed sentences on prisoners. And some of those sentences meant that people were going to be executed. Many of them were going to be whipped. They were going to be whipped oh. and birched. And so he, he's, he's got this mindset now. He's got this internal battle going on saying, here I am trying to think of how do I introduce this educational perspective, whereas I've got to oversee a hanging I've got to oversee people being whipped and being birched, and 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 that was this is something that plagued him all the way through. And and this is part of the book is is trying to work out how does he reconcile these areas of these punitive approaches of of the prison with his educational aspirations and spirit that he's brought into that, and it was really difficult for him. And and the book in the book we talk about these challenges and how he's tried to engage community members to tell, you know, have really promote the dialogue in the broader community about what the role of the prison should be and what the role of education should be. And those debates I've recorded in the book through the newspapers of the time and, and so on have been really, really challenging for him. But you know what he did? And and, and I think in some ways it's, it, it's... Some people say it's a cop-out 
and I'll say this is the way that he was able to actually maintain his spirit about his goals and his vision despite these challenges. And what he did was he turned every punitive approach into a learning experience. By that, I mean every whipping. What he did do is he interviewed every prisoner who was going to be whipped prior to the whipping. Then he interviewed them, individually interviewed them afterwards to get their experience about what did they learn from that experience. Now, for those prisoners who are going to be hanged, you can't ask people after the event because they're dead. But what he did do <laughs> was he translated that to all the other prisoners who were in the cell block or whatever it was where the execution occurred. What did they learn out of that? So through the book, I've tried to bring in how he's actually able to articulate and bring in this learning experience that meant so much to him in the face of doing things that he was really quite opposed to, but couldn't do anything about. How could he accommodate those those elements in terms of his um, his way that he was able to manage uh, his life and, and his expectations? So um, there's one story I, I will add to, to this one, which is also referenced in the book, is that Aykroyd's time lasted from 1924 through to 1947. So you can imagine, as I talked before, it's after World War I, it's through the Spanish flu, it's through the Great Depression of the 30s, it's through the Second World War, it's leading into the Cold War. So not at really strong periods of time for, for significant reforms. But Joseph Aykroyd had a son, um, and, and his son uh, was a doctor, a medical doctor, and he was in the armed forces, and he was a prisoner of war at Changi. In, held by the Japanese in Changi in, um, in Singapore. And he was Joseph Aykroyd managing prisoners here in Melbourne, basically in Victoria in, in Australia, whilst his son was being treated abysmally as a prisoner of war in the Japanese prison camps. And that was a really significant challenge point toward the end of his sentence time of how did he manage now thinking about working with these prisoners, knowing full well his son was a prisoner of completely different circumstances and treating poorly. Uh, and, and this is something that, that played on his mind so much about how, how do he actually cope with all of those things and keep his spirit going. And, and in my book and what I said to him, I, said, I really think toward the end of him, he wore out. These battles and trying to manage and keep these battles just wore him out. And, and in some ways I've articulated postulate, I suppose you could use the term, that maybe that's the way that he's not as recognised as I think he should be, because some people think he was a worn-out guy at the end. You know, the battles that he tried didn't quite work through there, whatever happened. But it was all those things that he set in place over that time that lasted into the following years and the practices he's put in place that are still in practice now, things such as making case studies, undertaking IQ tests, undertaking assessments beforehand, um, linking in and developing skills, uh, skills for work, skills for engagement with communication with community. All of those elements are now really important parts of our program. And through them, I know I'm talking on a bit, but the, one of the key things that also happened is that the next two inspector generals that followed him were also educationalists. 
So it was that really strong period of time where that intertwining between education, philosophy and policy was so dominant in prison and prisoner management. You know, the irony of his son being a prisoner and him being right there involved day to day with prison life is not lost on me to think about. The other thing about this, and this is I mean, he's amazing. You're absolutely right. You and I both have this educational background, and perhaps we're looking at what he's done in a different way than maybe somebody who has a business background, and and they're not thinking about this in exactly the same way. But I found the kinds of reforms that he tried to make and the things that he did to be quite remarkable. And I'm curious about one thing. I know that you had access to his personal papers. You had access to his diaries, his letters, uh, reports that he wrote, and then the newspaper articles and other private documents. I know that you had access to a lot of things that he wrote. How did you feel about that? Do you feel like you got to know him in a way that was different because you had access to his personal thoughts? It was... was I would say to you that was one of the most exciting parts for me, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll put that in, in terms of, of being, if I can consider myself a researcher on one hand, but also getting some insights into someone working in a field that was so important to me, because it gave that personal insight. All of those papers gave a personal insight, and he was so open in the way that he wrote and reflected. And, um <clears throat> And it was through those writings that you get an insight into his mind of how he saw, um, sorry, how I was able to, to relate to you in terms of his passion about what he wanted to achieve for people. So some of the formal papers that were written, and as you would know, you know it, it, there's lots of formal papers get written and they be, tend to become quite depersonalised. But when you start to have a look at the diaries, then you start to see the passion um, of of, of of Joseph's feelings and desires. And, and and I've tried in ways in that book to start to say, let's bring his words out uh, and use the, the language, his words, to help get a flavour of what it is that he was thinking and he was conveying and working with people as well. To me, language is so, so essential. It's one of the most important elements about getting an insight into what people are thinking what people, um, what is driving people. The, the language is the clue um, to be able to say, let's start to draw those down. And once we get into his private papers, it gives us a really intimate insight into him through his language. I couldn't agree with you more. Hearing someone's actual words, their actual thoughts as they're going through this process, and it gives you a different level of understanding of what they're trying to do because you have a little insight into their thinking process because they're giving it to you. This is just fascinating. Ron, you and I can, I know you and I could just keep going and keep talking about this, and I know that our listeners are quite interested in the book as well. Let's tell them where they can find it. Now, the book is on Amazon. Let me give you the specific title, do a little spelling for you so you can find it easily. If you've never been to Amazon to purchase a book, when you click on the, if you put Amazon in your browser and just click on it, 
a page comes up that's the home page. The first time you look at this, it can be a bit intimidating. It's so full of stuff, if you'll pardon the expression. But there's a box, there's a search box that's sort of a light gray, and it's rather long, rectangular. If you'll take your cursor and put it in that search box and put this title of the book, it's Joseph J-O-S-E-P-H Ackeroid A-K-E-R-O-Y-D I mispronounced that. It's Ackeroid colon Rediscovering a Prison Reformer by Ron R-O-N Wilson W-I-L-S-O-N Put that in. Click on it. The book will come up. When the book comes up You'll see the representation of the cover. And if you've never noticed, on the right-hand side of the book covers, there will be the two words, look inside. What that means is that if you'll put your cursor on that and click on it, the book will electronically open, and you will be able to read some of it. And the first part of that excerpt just pulls you right in with Ron and his world because he's telling you how he became involved, how he became involved with education in the prison, how he came to be there and his feelings and his own uh, thoughts about this. And I thought that that was a perfect way to start this book. Now, they can also find it if people don't want to buy from Amazon because some people don't. There are some other people, there are some other places that the book is available. Let's tell them where else they could find it, Ron. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. Um, there are two other websites that you're able to access uh, copies of the book. Um, the first one is um, www.authorronwilson, all one word, dot com. So I'll spell that out for you, www dot a u t h o r r o n w i l s o n dot com. No spaces. Or no spaces at all. All one word. Yep. And the second one um, is it's my own personal um, website. And it's my business website, of which I've got um, links to that book and to other areas and other papers and so on that I've written as well. And that's www dot diosma consultancy dot net dot au and I'll spell that out for you. So www dot d i o s m a c o n s u l t a n c y dot net n e t dot AU. So they're the two sites also that you can access and order the books from. Excellent. Now they could also Google you and find the books that way if they chose to, correct? That's correct, yes. So you can Google it under Ron Wilson um, and also through Diosma Consultancy, which is the business that I run. Now, you were telling me before we started recording, we were talking about social media and you were talking about a Facebook page that you're also posting on. Tell me, it sounds really interesting. Tell me a little bit about this page. Uh, this is a fascinating page. Thanks, Suzanne. There's a Facebook page and it's called The Lost History of Victoria. And it's also a subsection. It's called The Lost History of Melbourne. And what this um, Facebook 
PACE does was is bringing back the opportunity for people to look at different events that have occurred, particularly in Victoria, the state that I live in, and Melbourne, the city that I live in, um, about what events have happened in the past that we um, have often have, have just missed, have flossed over and, and or glossed over, and and it enables me to bring back photos and bring back stories on that. So I've um, I've put the story of Joseph Acheroid into that um, into that website, and the interest that it generated was again quite um, fantastic for me. It just showed the you know, the great interest in in wanting to know more about our our prison system, but also particularly this work that Joseph Acheroid did that is really so unheralded, and that's really the nub of why you know I've, I've written this book is really saying this man's story is so incredible. He hasn't been really recognised for the work that he's done. <laughs> I, mean, I really want to make sure that um, that we have that registered. And for me, for want of a better term, liking to set the record straight um, about the work and the impact that Joseph Ogeroid has done. You know, one of my favourite parts is that you have a picture of him on the front cover of the book, and that gave me a face to go with all of the wonderful information and all of the stories and the ideas, and it made him more real. So I thank you for giving me a visual image of him. I really think that was a great thing to do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, look, I really struggle as to whether and how many photos and pictures I would put into the book. and um, But I thought the books about Joseph Acheroid, the critical element is for people to see him. Um, and that's why I wanted that photo to be up front and, and be the core of the, the book. So it's about him um, and just trying to make sure that it's not distracting into other areas as well. I know that this is, I can hear in your voice, the passion and the admiration that you have for this man and for the things that he did in the prison system and from an educational standpoint. And I always think it's important for an author to be able to have the last word about their book, especially when it's as personal as it is for you in this book. When our listeners become readers and they pick up a copy of Joseph Ackeroyd, Rediscovering a Prison Reformer, and they sit down and they read the book, I'm sure they won't read it cover to cover in one sitting because this is the kind of book that you will want to read and think about and read and think about because there are so many ideas there. But when they come to the last page and they finish that last page and they close the back cover either electronically or physically, what's the real bottom line message from the book that you would like the reader to take away? I I think the key things I, I wanted to for people to take away is just to realise the um, the depth of commitment that Joseph Acheroid had for his community and for his people and for all of those people who lived in his community and that he fought so hard against so many challenges to try and get this, I think I'll call it a cohesive approach to supporting those people who have been marginalised with a passion and a drive to want to make sure that they're coming back and being part of our supportive community. He faced so many challenges, so many conflicts in these reforms, 
many of those ones weren't really formally realised until well after his retirement. But the challenges that he tore through, his persistence and his commitment, they he fought through based around these values and principles that he held dearly, and he maintained those despite the conflict that he had to try and achieve those ones. So I think it was just absolutely superb that it is, you know, that people will take away that story um, to realise that this man is a truly remarkable man who's made a significant difference to the world. I agree, and I want to thank you for making him someone that we can know through reading your book, because you're right, he has done so many things that I'm sure... Here in America, I'm sure that no one has ever even heard his name. And in Australia, I wish he would be really a little more part of history, a little bit more um, more understood, because think when he lived. He lived through wars. He lived through depressions. He lived through the great flu epidemic. I mean, and the man was still alive and still trying to do the best that he could do for the job that he had, for the people that were under his care. And I can't help but think about him being split between two different worlds because he would leave that prison and he would go home at night to his family. And during the day, he had a whole different family that he was taking care of in a different way. So thank you for holding up a mirror and showing us this man. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Ron. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Suzanne. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking with you. So thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to talk about Joseph Akeroyd. Well, he's fascinating. He really is. He's just fascinating. Remember, you can find Joseph Akeroyd Rediscovering a Prison Reformer by Ron Wilson on Amazon. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Suzanne Harris, and I hope you'll join me for the next Books on Up Air podcast, because remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for listening.